Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, all. It is an absolute pleasure to see you all. Thank you so much for this fantastic turnout. Um, so we today have a wonderful book launch from uh, Dr. Rambat and uh, Professor Shakuntala Banaji. And what we will do today basically is hear from our speakers about their wonderful book. And we will close with a book signing in which you can engage after uh, Q&A. Okay, so Social Media and Hate is written by Dr. Rambat, who is a visiting fellow and PhD alum of the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Dr. Bhatt holds a PhD in Media and Communications. Um, in 2008, he co-founded a collective in India, Mara, uh, which works on arts in public spaces and democratization of media. He has taught media and communications at various educational institutions in India and has consulted with a wide range of organizations on media and communication issues pertaining to the tackling of fake news, disaster preparedness, telecommunications and internet regulations, media ownership, digitalization of television and radio, spectrum allocation, and universal service provision. Professor Shakuntala Banaji is professor of media, culture, and social change in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, where she also serves as a program director for the MSE Media Communication and Development. Professor Banaji lectures and has published extensively on young people, children and media, as well as gender, ethnicity, and new media and cinema, with more than 50 articles and book chapters. She's also published a number of books, in addition to Social Media and Hate, which we will hear about today, which include Children and Media in India, Narratives of Class, Agency, and Social Change in 2016, Reading Bollywood in 2006, and an edited book with Sam Mehas, um, Youth Active Citizenship in Europe, Ethnographies of, Public, uh, of Participation, which was published by Palgrave in 2020. I am going to turn it over to our wonderful speakers today to hear a bit more about the book. I want you to keep in mind maybe some of these questions that might be generated for you uh, when you hear about the contents of the book, but hopefully some of you have already read it. Um, I will note one thing that I find ahead of time that is a fantastic achievement is that it is actually an open access book. <laughs> this is very, very rarely noted, but what this means is everybody can actually access this book for free online. And um, I, I just wanna make note of that in and of itself. Um, but with that being said, it's also a fantastic idea to have a hardcover of the book <laughs> because then you can get it signed. <laughs> All right, with that, I'll turn it over to our speakers. Thank you, Samar. Thanks everyone for being here today and thanks everyone who's online. It's really quite exciting and wonderful to see so many of you. I feel like I'm really amongst friends because I've known so many of you for so many years and Ram and me have actually worked with you. I wanna start off 
um, although they're not here, but maybe hopefully some of you are online, by thanking the people who took part in the book, who gave us testimonies for the book, and especially our researchers, Marina, Nehal, Zico, and Netyar. Without them, this book would not be what it is. And actually, without the researchers, there are many pieces of work that I've done in the past that would not be at all, wouldn't have come into existence. So that's... Um, completely on you. You've been amazing. We deliberately decided not to name all of the participants in the book because some people didn't want to be named. Some people were frightened of their, their name being put online because the kind of work we're doing requires um, a trigger warning in some senses, but also it requires us to remember that people have been arrested and could potentially be arrested because of the things they're telling us in the book. So, um, in previous work um, that we did, both of us, Ram and I, over the years working with communities of, of both media audiences and media practitioners, some of the things that we talk about in the book on social media and hate have come up repeatedly. So it isn't just that what we're going to talk about today comes up only in this book. In, for example, when I was interviewing someone in um, 2000, which is now 22 years ago, about Hindi films, um, one of them came out with a sentence which could be straight out of a, a hateful meme on social media. And then that sentence just cropped up again and again in conversations about films. And it was, um, I, I'll be very clear, it was an extremely Islamophobic thing, and I won't say it here, but it was something that we began to hear repeated again and again in the election campaigns of the now ruling party in India. So these are things that we've seen. Um, in our books on participation and democratic rights online, there was, a, there was a real sense of the excitement of the internet. The internet and social media could enable all kinds of wonderful things, but there too, we began to see bubbling up the, the far right, the white rights groups that were, were quite happy to be interviewed in Finland and, and Sweden and talk to us about why they thought Europe should be for the whites and whose, whose notion of civic participation was to get a public sphere which was clear of immigrants. And so these kinds of discourses are not just related to the internet. And I think one of the things we try to do is to look at the way they cross media and the way in which different mediums contribute to the discourses which are going on online. So what we're trying to do today, well, we're trying to locate and analyze some of the assumptions about trolling, hate speech, free, free speech, discrimination and political violence that have dominated scholarship on new media. And some of those assumptions, as you can imagine, if any of you've been um, following any of our work, we get irritated with assumptions and then we go straight out to disprove them. We want to discuss the political economic context, which is not something hugely original, because uh, there's quite a few people in the US working on um, social media, political economy, Facebook, and um, the ways in which these kinds of things are impacting the new AI sphere. So the political economic urge to produce ever newer surveillance technologies, which don't actually surveil in favor of people. And also to historicize histories of hate, and that might seem strange, but research on the internet and on social media can sometimes be really ahistorical. It sort of almost starts in 2005 with the first app, as if hate was somehow born on the day that Facebook went live. 
But really, these things have much, much longer trajectories. And I think you could even take some of them back 500 years. I know that's, that's sort of a terrifying thought, and I'm no historian, but history plays a huge role in understanding the current media dispensation. And then finally, just draw some brief conclusions about hateful disinformation and ways forward, which we'll really do by means of simply reading a few passages from our book, which draw on the interviews we did. So I'm going to hand over to Ram for how did we get here? Thanks, Shaku. And uh, just to say that I was here, I joined LSE in, as a master's student in 2014. So it's been an absolute pleasure to come back um, as a co-author with my supervisor, mentor, etc. So, um, and good to see so many familiar faces. Um, just to um, carry on from where Shaku left off, how did we get here? I want to talk about, um, before getting into this slide, a quick prehistory of before the 2000s. Um, in the decades of the 70s, there was um, a lot of shifts in terms of the beginning of the end of um, what Keynes inaugurated as welfare capitalism and the beginning of Reaganism, Thatcherism and the twin oil shocks, the so-called oil shocks. And that led to in the 80s, a huge impetus towards telecommunications. In 80s, there was a report called the Maitland Report. It's not there on the slide. But the Maitland report actually pointed out that there was a massive disparity between telecommunications access in the West and the rest. And that's when a lot of the capital started shifting in terms of telecommunications investment to the global South. So the Maitland report um, sponsored by the International Telecommunications Union was what was really crucial in framing telecommunications as the next a driver of growth. It was um, compared to the steam engine, if you like. So that was the official Maitland uh, you know, um, introduction, the report. So that really laid the ground for how um, telecommunications would become a crucial conduit for the flow of capital. Now we know that um, surplus value derives from the circulation of capital, not its um, you know, not it being stationary. So telecommunications became a very crucial pathway on how capital would circulate and how value would uh, grow. So that really, um, the 80s and the 90s were really the decades when a lot of the infrastructure for telecommunications uh, began to be laid in the global south. Um, I think in the 90s, there were more than, um, I think, 90 countries which liberalized their telecommunications sector. The public sector was dismantled. Um, India included, Brazil included, a lot of the global south countries. The 90s saw the dismantling of the public sector and the private sector came in um, with the GATS and the, you know, these kind of WTO imposed frameworks. A lot of this is familiar ground, but you know, um, telecommunications was a key part of the so-called liberalization uh, regime. And that was very crucial for um, what we are talking about here. I mean, it's a short book, so we don't have time, uh, we don't have space to go into that detailed history. I did explore some of it in my doctoral work, but that's the prehistory to what we are discussing in this book uh, from the early 2000s, where um, 
organizations like the World Bank um, promised growth in connectivity as some kind of a magic pill for GDP. I think it was like for every 10% increase in internet connectivity, there was a 1% or 2% GDP growth promised. So that was the basis for which huge investments in um, internet connectivity. And it was no paradox. Uh, it's, no, it's no surprise actually that the paradox of a greater connectivity in the name of freedom development and so on, coinciding with increase of inequality in much of the global South. These two went hand in hand. Um, and I think in some of the countries that we've covered, um, Myanmar, Brazil, India, you see the same kind of broad arc um, that, that we see in this twin phenomenon of increasing connectivity, but also increasing inequality. And that I think sets the ground for um, not explaining, but framing some of this hateful content that explodes with connectivity. Um, since the late 2000s, um, there's been a twin kind of thing again, which has happened. One is the platformization of infrastructures. So um, in India, for example, we all, many of you would know the Aadhaar project, the biometric identity project. It's become a kind of a platform uh, because now it's been attached to a stack where third party applications can use the identity project uh, for even private services. So for example, you can't have a bank account unless it's linked to your identity, um, you know, so those kind of things. So the infrastructure itself has become like a platform and um, also infrastructuralization of platforms. That is a much more secular phenomenon. I think all of us are much more aware of how um, Amazon Prime, for example, is not just an OTT platform and also a shopping platform and so on and so forth. Now, um, the platformization of infrastructure, I think, um, has very dangerous implications because it changes the architecture of politics. And a lot of people have written about this in the recent past, um, not just in India, but across uh, Latin America, Africa. There's a lot of literature. I think in Africa, it's called basic income grants. In Latin America, they're called CCTs, conditional cash transfers. There's been a fair amount of literature on, um, there have been some positive impacts uh, there have been in improvements in dietary intake of children. There have been increase in school enrollment. Um, you know, uh, nutritional um, indicators have improved. But at the same time, it has centralized governance to an extent where there's been a loss of accountability. A decentralized forms of governance have taken a hit. I can certainly attest to this in India, where even um, even in my own research, people at the last mile. Uh, perceive that state money is coming in directly from the top because it's a direct cash transfer. So these kind of things um, have monopolized business and centralized politics, both very kind of troublesome uh, phenomena. And I think this uh, platformization of infrastructure and infrastructurization of platforms has uh, accompanied um, what Shaku has called vigilante citizenship in, even in her previous work. So in this book, what we've done is try to take this infrastructural approach um, and how we define infrastructure is drawing on various authors, especially media anthropologists, 
looking at infrastructures as both technical and cultural systems, uh, but they tend towards institutionalization. So I gave the example of Aadhaar, but uh, there are a lot of other examples. Um, and they both, they bind people into collectivities so that it influences how we shape our own subjectivity. And we can talk about this more. Um, when I say that we bound, they bound us in subjectivities, I refer to something what many people have called like a moral economy, you know, uh, not, not in the conventional E.P. Thompson sense that there's a dominant uh, view that emerges, but in a sense that these infrastructures have a way of making common sense of what is right, what is wrong. And that's where um, the hate speech can be seen. So that's what we mean when we say the infrastructural context has a link with how we shape our subjectivity. Um, I know it's a bit jargon, but we can get into the details later. Um, and because of this infrastructural context, which is, which I'm giving you in a very macro sense, what we've tried to do is from that macro sense, try to think about how it manifests in a national context. So what does the infrastructural context, how does it manifest in Myanmar? So for example, in Myanmar, uh, um, until the late nineties, a SIM card and a handset was I think upwards of $2,000. Uh, there was strict control over uh, who could set up a telecommunications uh, license, right? So the, the military kind of very strictly controlled all of it. Uh, similarly, in India, you could see that until the late 90s, uh, there were limits on foreign investment. Uh, there were strict uh, rules on revenue share or license licensing norms. Um, so in every country, this infrastructural context manifests in a different way. And each of the chapters we've tried to kind of talk about how that infrastructural context manifests in the national, um, national level. And combined with that, we've tried to look at both the contextual and then the intertextual analysis, which Shaku will talk a little bit more about. And that, I think, helps us to get at a better understanding of not just what, what we are seeing on the screen, what we are seeing in media practice, but also how we can see it um, historically. Just to talk a little bit uh, about the methodology, um, we've been doing some of this work from 2017-18, where we did uh, research around the role of WhatsApp in uh, vigilante violence in India. So that's where we kind of started doing some of the work around violence and hate speech. And um, we've since then been continuously doing research as part of this book, but also through our own work on other projects. Um, like SM was mentioning, I'm part of a collective, so we've been doing our own work. So as part of our collective work, we've been, we've talked to about um, experts, 15 experts, done over 100 interviews, uh, 20 focus groups, uh, focus group discussions. Um, and the most difficult part was to look at 3,000 uh, posts drawn from various platforms. I just want to talk a little bit about, um, because this question always comes up that how do you access? A lot of the um, social media um, platforms, some of it is available on public, but uh, apps like WhatsApp 
it's peer to peer it's encrypted telegram etc so what we what we did was set up a separate uh, number and when we used to do the in person uh, research we would ask them to forward what they would generally forward to others uh, with an understanding that we would scrub the metadata so we would only be left with the message not with the details of the sender so um based on our collection of these 3000 posts we've carefully kind of classified them and um, the book has a kind of typology again which shaku will talk about more but also it's been a very difficult process and a slow and painful process um of dealing with or looking at this kind of information um i don't want to talk too much in detail because some of it is very graphic um so consider this a little bit of a trigger warning but uh, just to give you a sense that you know a lot of the content which we saw i'll give some examples from india um you know there are india's a society divided on the lines of caste uh, which cuts across religions which cuts which cuts across class which cuts across urban rural so we we saw a lot of um, messages videos where there is some kind of a perverse pleasure in the horror of violence i think this deserves a separate kind of study where something is compelling uh, people to almost take joy in the forwarding of this gory violence hangings beatings um sexual violence undescribable stuff um and i think it reminds it reminded us of those jim crow era where people used to share postcards of the hangings you know so it's very similar to that so i think while there's more work to be done um it was a slow and painful process for us to look at that material and try to make sense of it uh in terms of categories of content genres uh aesthetics and i don't think it's possible to um let ai do it i don't think ai can do it it's a human task but it's a painful and slow task so um i think it needs more work and i i think we will continue to do more work on it um yeah so i'll move on to the findings and let shaku talk about that thanks for bearing with us so far um just while we while ram was on that point about what were we looking at um even since we've done the book people continue to send <laughs> me examples of hate speech so my inbox is constantly full either with hate speech directed against me or with hate speech directed against others but which people think i would find really interesting some of the examples that we've recently looked at um are interesting and horrifying from a linguistic perspective where large groups of people are now being substituted so instead of saying like black people or muslims now people will say mosquitoes or cockroaches or or coconuts or um something like that and so they'll talk about they'll talk about preparing for a harvest of the coconuts or preparing to exterminate the mosquitoes and these these have been of course being used in rakhine in in um myanmar for a long time these kinds of phrases and words but now in an effort to evade linguistic censorship through ai all you need to do is say something else so you know we're gathering we're going to sharpen our sides and harvest the corn we're going to sharpen our sides and harvest the coconuts cutting coconuts um, how much will you get 
And in fact, they're even discussing getting um, rewards. You know, so if I get if I get a bunch of ten coconuts, um, I'll be promoted to division leader of this particular organization. And this is all being discussed in quasi-public forums on Facebook and Instagram and Telegram. So you know, so just to note that getting around linguistic and AI censorship is something that they find pretty easy to do. So what do we explore? Well, um, our first chapter is boring and technical because it looks at the not so very effective definitions of hate speech. And the UN has tried, the Council of Europe has tried, and various other tribunals have tried, and there are some really quite accurate and, and fairly all-encompassing definitions, but there's no universally accepted definition of hate speech. And in fact, academics have come along and muddied the waters by saying, well, let's not call it hate speech because, and they've given all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't call it hate speech. And some of them are very good reasons. Let's call it extreme speech or dangerous speech, you know, because um, even me telling you something like, people are talking about harvesting coconuts. Some people will report me for hate speech for that. And so that cycle of being misreported then feeds into an idea that it's the, it's the very definition of hate speech itself, which needs to be changed. But anyway, we decided we would define hateful content for you, at least what we were looking at. And we define it as online content, which demeans, dehumanizes, stereotypes, perpetuates discrimination against, and or initiates or legitimizes violence against individuals or groups based on protected characteristics such as social class, caste, race, religion, ethnicity, gender, sex, sexual orientation, disability, neurodiversity, age, language, body size, and political orientation. And we decided we would put in things like neurodiversity, disability, and body size because that's often left out of these discussions. And yet time and time again, in the videos that we were shown, in the words that people forwarded us, we saw an overlap of these things. So it wouldn't just be you XXX type of woman, it would be you that woman or you this person or you disabled leech and the kind of terminology and language that was used frequently pulled us into a situation where it was impossible to say which bit of someone's identity was being privileged privileged through the hate they were receiving so to start with, in our second chapter, we discovered that all of the protests from social media companies about all of the things that they'd done actually belie one single big fact, that hate is really good for business. And it's not just good for business for social media companies. It's good for business for big television companies. It's good for big business for big newspapers including ones with hugely reputable global reputations. And I think to be, to be completely honest, um, if we were to write this book again, we probably should just call it media and hate because the idea that social media is somehow much more culpable for the hate going round didn't hold water in the analyses we were doing. Much of the clipped out and amended material going round on hateful communication was actually taken from political commentators talking on mainstream news channels in Brazil, in Myanmar, in India. And in the UK, they may be a little more careful, but they were careful to say the word alleged before they went on to then talk about pedophiles connecting to um, Muslim organizations and so on and so forth. So the mainstream media, extremely culpable. We collected all of this 
And then we looked at the ways in which events followed on representations. So we weren't simply interested in what did someone say? We were interested in what did people do after someone said that? And there were spikes. And although we don't do network analysis in this book, we know people who do. And we've also worked with people who did. And recently I had a visiting colleague who looked at the ways in which a particular statement would go out into the media sphere. And a few days later, violence would spike in an area, a region, or in people's inboxes in silence and secret. So communicative practice and social political context matter hugely to the construction and the perpetuation of hateful materials. Here we talk a little bit about these practices. Transmediality, which we've talked about before in our work on WhatsApp, is where a single narrative springs up across multiple different media sites. Social media messages act in tandem with ideas, tropes, messages, and stereotypes that circulate more widely in the public domain. And that public domain may be a happy Diwali greeting, or it may be um, a Hanukkah card, which is WhatsApp to someone, but underneath it, there's a message of hate against another community. Intertextuality, where TV clips, fan pages from Facebook and so on and so forth, contribute content across multiple genres. So we saw genres of comedy hate, which was still hate. And we saw the genre of suspense hate, which was still hate. Little clips from um, police procedurals in which the video would start off with someone talking about a fake crime that had never been committed by a particular community, as if it had, and then go on to solve their own fake murder mystery within the little clip, the three minute clip that went on. And these things were absolutely ubiquitous. And so there was clearly a lot of media literacy on the part, in fact, digital media literacy on the part of the people making these clips and circulating them. These were no newbies to social media. Mainstream TV news contained much politically motivated hate speech and perpetuated stereotypes, which acted in our view as an incitement to violence. This was particularly the case in Brazil, whenever one of Bolsonaro or his family or his party went on board and gave a speech. And we saw a lot of this happening in the COVID-19 pandemic. This was particularly a kind of frenzy whipped up by Bolsonaro's Office of Hate, a group akin to an army of troll warriors who would pursue anyone who said anything about COVID-19 which went against what Bolsonaro himself was saying. And you can begin to see how much this impacted the lives of people through some of the interviews in our book and in the chapter on Brazil. And of course, finally, there is an undermining of the idea of media literacy itself, which is strange and horrifying to me, who's been a media literacy teacher since the 1990s, because ultimately all of the things that we teach people in order to inoculate them against potential misinformation and fake news are also things that we saw repeatedly being used as tropes by the far right in all these countries to get their supporters to cast doubt on any narrative about hate speech, any narrative against discrimination, and any narrative in favor of human rights. So we would be told that if a massacre was shown on mainstream television of a real group of people who had died, there would be immediately hundreds of posters saying this was fake, it wasn't a real massacre, it was fake. Meanwhile, a manufactured massacre 
which was a pretend massacre taken from a movie, but overlaid with the voice of someone saying, this terrible thing has been done in the name of Islam, would be circulated to hundreds of millions of people across the South Asian subcontinent. And so I think here we begin to see these media literate people acting in a way which perpetuated hate and undermining the idea that you could easily find out who was lying and who was telling the truth. I'm gonna read a little from the book just to give you a flavor and also to honor the words of some of the people who spoke to our research assistants and ourselves over the time that we were collecting this book. So here's um, someone telling us, the story was spread via Bolsonaro's social media channels that Fernando Haddad had created a gay toolkit, which he planned to introduce in primary schools so the children from the age of six would be encouraged to become gay. In fact, Haddad as Brazil's former minister for education and alongside other politicians had promoted an educational program for primary school students to understand sexual diversity and to combat homophobia, which is absolutely rampant across Brazil. This hateful and mendacious but politically effective campaign culminated when deep fake videos of Fernando Haddad implicating him and his ministers and supporters in deviant sexual practices, and in particular in pedophilia, were circulated in a targeted manner towards sections of the Catholic and evangelical population. And in particular, and this is where it gets really sad because people often think that social media hate is a very masculine thing, but actually there's an absolute army of women out there doing it, buying it and buying into it. Um, Middle-aged women, swinging them away from the workers' party at the last minute in 2018. And of course, as we speak, as we launch this book, Brazil hangs in the balance. And although some people may think it's in the bag for the Workers' Party again, it absolutely isn't because this swing before the last election happened in the last two weeks, in the last two weeks. They will pull out anything at that moment. So most hate crimes are typically generated by racial prejudice, says one of our interviewees. Gender comes in second place. They're trying to think that these are people who receive endless amounts of hate in their inboxes. In third place, we find homophobic crimes okay, and politically ideological messages, especially after Bolsonaro's election. And that is not just our opinion, but the opinion of pretty much everyone that we interviewed from Brazil. Bolsonaro and his ministers are very active on Twitter, and they use this platform to post hate messages against the left as if any person who diverged from the government was an enemy. This is their narrative. Besides the ideological side, there's also a racist one. The government is composed mostly of white people. They don't talk about diversity. They're extremely homophobic. During Carnival, the president himself reinforced stereotypes that exist in relation to homosexuals. When authorities legitimize hate speech, we expect that some people will start reproducing this behavior. We are seeing far-right groups proliferating, groups that actively hate homosexuals, and they don't even use subtle language. On Facebook, Facebook, you will find posts defending killing gays and lesbians in the name of a clean society, in the name of a Christian society. And we were sent these posts in Portuguese. We were sent these posts in translation. We were shown examples of exactly what she's talking about. African or African Brazilian religions are frequently attacked. This is closely linked to racism too. And Beatriz um, is someone who's actually working on media literacy and trying to educate young people and children around issues to do with recognizing disinformation and hate speech. The right uses disinformation as a strategy. And I think 
it's taken us a long time to catch up with the fact that the right uses disinformation as a strategy because the right controls most of mainstream media. And most of mainstream media spends much of its time throwing shade at what it calls the left. And I think if we are going to use that terminology, the right and the left, it would be worthwhile admitting that actually no longer is there really just a right. The far right has become the center right in all four of the countries that we were looking at. And that's something we don't spend enough time talking about. And we don't spend enough time talking about the fact that the media has moved with the far right and that it defends the far right and that it legitimizes them. And that's the mainstream media, including our very own beloved BBC. Some don't necessarily share the ideology. They're being paid to do it. Yes, we did find paid trolls. So we avoid posting photos showing where we live. We avoid posting family photos. We're careful not to say where our kids go to school. Attacking our loved ones is part of their strategy. Some people send emails saying, I know where your kid goes to school. And it's more common than you imagine. It happens all the time. There's another fact-checking agency that live fact-checked Bolsonaro's speech at the UN. And they are still being attacked for that. And that's three years later. And this is another recipient of hate speech. They, the far right, call you a hooker and worse. It's always an attack against our bodies, our existence, our mental capacity. It's always linked to sex. Like what happened to the list of women who've been through this is endless. They, they named some names. We took the names out because one of the things we didn't want to do was get anybody any further hate speech. There was an account with a statue in the profile picture that sent me an inbox message every single day saying, I'll shoot you in the face, you whore. It's always a statue, a comic strip, but it's not a bot because they react to reality. They talk. One of the things I get told in some of the Facebook messenger messages that I get from unknown numbers and unknown profiles is just come to India and we'll show you how to be a true Indian woman. And then they go on to graphically describe how they're going to do this. And we will plant Indian sons in your womb. We are considered an abomination, says Reverend Jeed Macaulay. We are considered against nature. They believe that we come from the bottomless pit of hell. And some are saying that, and we are saying that God is a loving God. God is inclusive. God is liberating. God is freedom and God is queer because that is all of who we are. So he's contrasting their rhetoric, the rhetoric they try to deploy with the kind of hate they receive. The House of Rainbow started in the atmosphere where the Nigerian government had introduced the anti-gay bill to parliament, 14 years imprisonment with hard labor for anyone convicted of homosexuality. Now, why did I choose, why did Ram and I choose this particular quote in this chapter? Because we had, we had I think, more than 2,000 pages of transcripts and we had to select very carefully our quotes. But repeatedly, time and time again, people were telling us the same thing. Social media hate is not social media hate. Social media hate is legitimized legal hate. Before social media hate came the bills and the laws. Before social media hate came the things preachers said in mosques and churches. Before social media hate came the way in which the family said, you can't be this here. You can't say this there. 
And so they repeated this again and again. And there was about five to 10 years imprisonment for organizing a gay group or assembly of gay people, including religious ones. From day one, I received hate messages on social media. Under the blog we wrote, the hatred was just unbelievable. I can attest to that, I've seen some of it. And just two days ago, I came across an article and I was reading it and then I read the comments about me and my ministry. A few days ago, people were asking for me to be killed and executed. I reported them to the police as soon as I get them. People have taken out a petition page on change.org against me as a fake pastor. People have set up an alternative Twitter account in order to create a massive following of people that will hate me and cuss me. Yeah, so I've a designated police officer in London who I will just send all these things to, but nothing has been done. So we looked through all our interviews, we looked through all the texts that we were analyzing and we came up with a typology. And I know a typology isn't very exciting and it's not very original because lots of people have done typological work. And in fact, I would even say some of the typological work they've done is better than ours. It's brilliant, it's focused, it's clever and it's clear. There are typologies of hate in, in black um, circles in, in the American South, in, in parts of Africa. There's a typology of hate, of Islamophobia coming out of a group in Birmingham University. All of these are very useful. There's stuff around indigenous peoples coming out of Australia. Um, very, very good work, very interesting work. So I uh, suggest you go to that and follow it up. But our typology has one thing which these don't, which is that it brings together the perpetrators, the recipients and the messages. So it tries to give you a sense of what is the logic going on here in the circulation of hate. So hate, dehumanization, misinformation, and disinformation spreads largely due to ideology and prejudice rather than ignorance and illiteracy. And maybe you're an audience of the converted and you know us and you're sympathetic, so this doesn't need to be emphasized. And maybe many of us come from a media communications tradition and we're not coming out of social psychology, let's say, but there is an enormous amount of work in social psychology, which is trying to prove exactly the opposite, that ideological orientation has nothing to do with it, that people who believe in feeding the poor and, and, and hungry orphans and people who believe in women's rights are actually the most extreme perpetrators of hate. And this is a very interesting trend. I think you're going to see more and more of these kind of publications coming out. There's no doubt someone, Rams and my counterparts in another country, in another life, writing a book about hate on the left, just as we speak. Um, and this is where it's going. This is what they do. They take the language of social science. They take the language of radical politics. They talk about hegemony, they talk about consent, they talk about conformity, and they apply it all even to the most moderate of liberals. And liberalism has no answer to that so far, as far as I can see. That's just been what happens. And in fact, liberals are engaging on that terrain. They're talking about illiterate and ignorant people. They're talking about, let's teach people so they don't pass on the fake news. But that's a battle which is already lost because that's not why people are passing on the fake news. 
Media literate, upper caste, urban, Buddhist in Myanmar, Hindu in India, white in the other countries, men and women with supremacist beliefs play a more central role in creating and forwarding disinformation and misinformation in administering groups to spread it than users with lower educational levels and those from minoritized groups. In each of our case study countries, historically othered groups who have faced histories of pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial violence are far, far more likely to be the targets of hate and dehumanization and discrimination online. Within these minoritized groups, those with intersections of identity with being women and or LGBT are more violently targeted. So always, always the other has an other. And I'm going to just read you a little bit from the book here. The aggressor groups tend to be Muslim in Muslim majority countries, Indonesia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Jewish in Jewish majority countries, and Buddhist in some Buddhist majority countries. But to be precise, it is not just outspokenness and not just the intersection of race or caste with gender, sexuality, disability, and age that makes some individuals and groups more likely to be targets. Even within racial and sexual groups, there are subgroups who are most frequently and virulently targeted just for existing. So black women, especially working class, Muslim, gay and trans black women and trans men face some of the highest levels of violence abuse online and offline. While Asian women and Dalit women and particularly visible Muslim women, especially those who veil or those who openly reject the veil are targets of multiple forms of discriminatory and abusive communicative behaviors before they even open their mouths. This is the case even when they don't speak out publicly about issues of rights and justice and simply post comments about soap opera characters. They receive hate simply for saying they didn't like the ending of a soap opera. These discriminated groups are closely followed by black men, Dalit men and Muslim men in all of these intersecting categories and in all our case study countries. And in particular, any men in these categories who advocate for the poor and non-minoritized and oppressed groups and are broadly on the left. Let's leave aside that terminology for now. Notably, hate speech is also aimed from within oppressed groups at other minoritized and oppressed groups, either intersecting or outside that group identity. There's simply nothing which says, I receive hate, therefore I won't give it. There are plenty of people who do that too. So let's conclude then. Going down a legal route, which is what loads of the experts kept telling us that we should be doing and they should be doing. Oh, you received this, just report it to the police, just report it to Facebook or Twitter. Something will be done. It gets one only so far. So I'm not saying don't go down that route because obviously, yes, duh. Anti-hate speech laws are often used selectively by powerful political blocks against minorities and suppressed populations to stifle all forms of dissent and throw dust around to hide actual abuse. So there are even terms being invented to get people into trouble. So-and-so has a toolkit, an activist toolkit. The activist toolkit has been shared. Share, try sharing a file with the word toolkit in it, even if it's a make bread toolkit, and you might find yourself falling foul of the Indian police. Law enforcement are deeply implicated in both these tendencies in these contexts we studied, and pretty much in every other country in the world. Meanwhile, newer customized and disguised and more vicious forms of trolling, deep fakes, visual propaganda, and dehumanizing content are circulated online and used to initiate and legitimate violence offline as well. 
So finally, given individuals and groups deeply unsatisfying experiences of reporting hate speech and overt incitement to moderators, I don't know if you've tried, but I've tried, and 90% of my reports come back with, well, this really wasn't hate speech because even if it contains every single one of the trigger words that you would imagine, so don't know what they actually count as hate speech. And given the fact that our accounts keep getting suspended, when we're trying to work against hate speech, that tells you how very good those moderators are. So Meta, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube, and people's equally depressing experiences of inaction, apathy, contempt, and harassment from police and legal entities when they attempt to pursue their attackers in order to gain a modicum of safety. It is clear that following regulations and policies on discrimination, hate speech, and incitement to violence does not always protect against or even protect prevent ensuing violence. So we have a case in Brazil of someone who was sent um, a picture of a noose. They were repeatedly sent the picture of the noose. They asked the police, they told people something is going to happen. They, were, they reported it, um, they were followed, they told the police, the police just said, you have to wait for something to happen to you before you can tell us about it. And of course, inevitably something did. So this is the way in which um, crimes of hate are investigated. Efforts to reduce social media hate to a technological phenomenon in which algorithms are gamed for popularity or prestige, one that is engaged in by only fringe extremists, or one that is populist and used by far left and far right, or, or, or one that is about fake news spread by digital illiterates, all play into the hands of fascists right-wing groups, and the biggest, most organized spreaders of hateful disinformation, governments, as well as unaffiliated individuals who harbor racist and misogynist views. Let us be really clear when we leave you with this book, not only are technocentric explanations not serving to alleviate the sufferings of those at the receiving end of online racism, homophobia, misogyny, and other forms of hate. Such explanations and their avatars are actively abetting the systematic and organized right-wing networks and imaginaries for whom hate and violence are tools of power. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. As Ram did, I'm actually also going to apologize for the volume that I have access to today. It's actually quite low, so do bear with me. I cannot go louder than this. Um, so there are so many wonderful things that I could say about this book, and I'm going to do my best to just be very, very concise and leave it to just a comment, a question, perhaps. If you all um, uh, can also prepare your questions that you may have, we will have a microphone um, uh, traveling in here. And also those of you who are joining us online, there will be an opportunity for, for some of your questions to be asked as well. Um, but I do want to say, first of all, that um, you referred to the introductory chapter as boring, and I found that deeply offensive <laughs> because it was wonderful. <laughs> and I think one thing that this book does uh, really accomplish is um, to think through uh, hate speech um, and hate violence, but kind of 
take it away from the language of, of um, crime and, and criminalization and just rest kind of lazily on policy. And instead they really nuance um, uh, what hate looks like and what hate may, um, how hate may relate to uh, social media. And on that, I do wanna say that a kind of grander takeaway that I have here is that, um, so there, there are two ways perhaps to think about the, the influence between social media and hate. Um, one being the, 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 the way that uh, the circulation of hate uh, speech via social media impacts or, or influences kind of pogroms and, and genocidal violence in, in, in real life, right? Um, <laughs> but then there's also, of course, this kind of more direct form of violence that is experienced by people through social media outlets um, because of the uh, hate speech, perhaps um, leading to doxing or, or trolling or, or, or um, uh, non-consensual kind of um, uh, information or, or photo sharing. And I think that the authors really do a tremendous job at, at uh, taking these these very different countries um, and these very different contexts, historicizing them in order to point to uh, a kind of uh, how hate may be deeply entrenched ideologically um, in these uh, you know various spaces, um, rather than leave us with something that maybe is is new and are used that that you know social media is just producing something that's, you know, um, that can only be understood now. Uh, with that being said, I think, and, and you know, this is maybe partially a question, but um, I'm wondering if one thing that is unique about social media um, is that it has the power to do both, um, both the kind of direct harm, but also the inspiring of uh, uh, physical violence. Um, on a kind of massive scale. Um, that wasn't exactly the, the, the full question though, but I, I, I could start there perhaps. Um, do you wanna take part of that? I'll just, I'll just say one thing in response to that, that there's actually a third thing that it does, which we didn't talk about as much today, but that's logistics. So not only does it have the potential to sort of legitimate and inspire violence, as well as to be a direct act of violence, as in someone would um, video a lynching and then send it around as a kind of message to other people in a community saying, you dare step out of line, this is what we're going to do. But also in a lot of the pogroms we've looked at and in a lot of the online doxing and other hate that we've looked at, online is used to organize that event. So it is, it's, it's got a tripartite role in the sense that it's a communicative mechanism via Telegram and WhatsApp and Viber where these things are being organized, talked about, discussed, meeting points are agreed on. And all of this evidence is there in a huge online archive. So I think, yes, it is in that sense, it would be much more difficult to take over a news broadcast and say 9 p.m. in front of such and such a place in Brixton, we're going to get these guys, bring your baseball bats. That's, you know, so the, the unique intersection of those three things, the ability to terrorize by repeating again and again a particular form of violence, the ability to actually be a form of violence, and the ability to 
engage in very vast and complex logistical networks of violence is really quite, I think, unique to social media. Do you want to go from there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult question. Um, I mean, one can approach it in several levels. Um, and I hope um, our media department takes up some of this research. Uh, one of the things um, Shaku and I are trying to look at is, um, you know, how this dialectic of online and offline are actually constructed, right? Um, so let's talk about, for example, we know that this seminal work done um, on television and how it has an aesthetic of flow. Television is always flowing, right? But social media seems to have a different um, aesthetic. So what are the linkages between the televisual aesthetic and the social media aesthetic? How does it present liveness, for example? How, do, how does one experience liveness on social media? Very different from, let's say, how you would experience liveness. So what does that do, uh, both to uh, flows of hate, but also how hate is experienced? Mm -hmm. So I think there's more work to be done yeah. um, on how the online, quote unquote, is actually constructed, both in terms of affordances, but also to the infrastructures, uh, which would include very complex things like uh, the distribution of content distribution, thick servers, right, or uh, localization laws, and so on and so forth. So it's a tremendously complex work. Mm. Um, and I think media and communications, especially um, as a kind of an interdisciplinary field, is well suited to um, ask those questions. I'm sorry, it's not a very satisfactory answer, but I think, you know, we need to really think about this a little bit more deeply. Yeah. Definitely. I'll just pick up one last point on what you said. I think for years, there's been a battle between different forms of media about which type of medium is most trustworthy. So at various points, radio has tried to construct itself as where you can go for the newest breaking news, but also news that is curated and can be trusted. The newspapers, of course, have done that, and so has television. And in the early days of social media, a lot of mainstream media journalists were quite scared. They were scared that this was going to affect their lives and livelihoods. It has. They were right to be scared. And they were also scared about the upcoming phenomenon that was then being called citizen journalism. And in an effort to retain their position as professionals, there was an awful lot of shade thrown at social media, which was, you can't trust these people. There's no one curating it. But that discourse, very interestingly, has been taken and twisted on its head now. And therefore, social media entrepreneurs and social media influencers are now saying things like, you can't trust those people. They have a vested interest in the system. They are experts. Experts have a vested interest in the system. Therefore, don't trust the mainstream media. And in every country that I've done work in, including the countries of the Middle East and North Africa, including Turkey, there is this really strong dialectic of trust. So you're supposed to trust to be a good citizen, but you then want to know who you should trust. And social media is now winning that battle of trust because each individual has someone or a group of people that they trust a lot on social media. Even if those people are, have been telling lies and talking through their backsides for the last 10 years, they still are the most trusted source on something. And so if those people tell you to go to a particular television station and watch it, you will do that. And I think that dialectic of trust has really swung in the direction of everything that is 
what you should not be trusting, whether that is mainstream or social media. And that actually, unfortunately, means that a lot of people don't know who to trust now. And that, that trust can no longer be seen as something that is um, a classic political science indicator of good citizenship. So I think that is something that social media has done and achieved too. Thank you so much. Then the second question that I have, and then I will turn it over to you all, I promise to release this, um, is actually maybe connected to the, um, the typology that you had uh, shown us on, on your PowerPoint, where you had um, the media literate group, right? Um, so I'm wondering, this is something that was coming up for me a lot while I was reading, was um, if you could paint us a picture of your argument regarding the structural power of the of those who spread hate online. So I think that, you know, the book does this really fantastic job showing uh, a type of cooperation between elites, um, political elites, but also uh, those of structural advantage in, in given societies. And I'm wondering if if um, if you could explain maybe to to to. Uh, the audience, is it that the virtual world is kind of overpopulated by people um, who reflect dominant pro-government fascist ideologies, um, or is it that they have some kind of particular power to recapitulate their own voice? Okay, so I think we'll take this question in two parts, because um, if it is, a, if the online world is overpopulated by certain types of people, then there are different reasons for that. And I think the technological reasons and the reasons for, let's say, um, connections between social media companies as parts of elites who are trying to market products to other elites in order to get money from the populace, I'm going to leave that part to you to talk a little bit about. And I will talk a bit about, um, first I want to start with counterexamples to this, you know, because um, pretty much every one of us or any one of us can recount having had a bad experience online. And there's been a lot of talk about cancelling. One of you have heard the phrase cancel culture. So I kind of wanted to go to that first. Um, and the people who typically will complain about cancelling and cancel culture or have done um, out loud a lot more actually are parts of larger majority groups or groups with a lot of power in society that tend to be. And, and again, even within that group, there's some truth in the fact that damage can be done and has been done by people like me even, who may be calling somebody out for something, and that you can feel very sad and upset um, when 25 people have made comments that you shouldn't have um, made a fattest remark or you shouldn't have made that misogynist remark. You can feel horrible. You can go to bed feeling shamed and humiliated. So I want to acknowledge that the horrible emotions that come with having made a mess online or said something you shouldn't have said affect everybody. And I have a lot of compassion for anybody who's been in that situation, even if you genuinely did a horrible thing and messed up. But the truth is, the response you're getting is neither cancellation nor hate speech. And so the question is, what makes the recipients of hate speech actual recipients of hate, rather than of somebody telling you off or somebody holding you to account, or even somebody shaming you a little bit because it's good to see you fall or brought low. And that is the group that they come from. Their historical intersection with other histories of marginalization or oppression or suppression. And this is very, very clearly different in different countries 
countries. So when we went to Brazil, it wasn't the case that a lot of the hate speech was aimed against Muslims. I mean, although there were some discourses, bizarrely, spilling over from the US and spilling over from other countries about Muslims, that wasn't the majority of the hate. And the majority of people doing that were clearly not the same kinds of people writing those posts in India. So the overrepresentation of people from majority groups, elite groups, powerful groups online is actually a, a has to be factored into who's taking themselves out of that space. Because the space initially, I think, could easily have been populated by lots and lots of us, including people from all kinds of minoritized, racially profiled backgrounds. But people choose to take themselves off because it's just simply so damaging. It's a bit like saying, here's an alleyway next to LSE. Why has the camera only picked up 80 men and three women going down this alleyway? There's no light above the alleyway. Um, we know what happened last week, um, but it's so mysterious. Why were there 80 men and only three women when the alleyway is smooth and anyone could cut across it at night? Now, I don't need to tell you why there are 80 men and three women using that alleyway in the last 10 minutes. You know, okay? And it's exactly the same with social media. Everyone told us in the 1990s that social media and me new media was going to be the space that was the great leveler you wouldn't get molested on there. Nothing was gonna to happen to you if you stepped on there. And so we did in our hundreds of thousands and in many, many different countries. And back from the old listserv days, there are many of us who got burnt by that. And so we slowly took ourselves out of those spaces or started creating gated spaces where we would be safe with more people like ourselves. And so you'll probably find that there are more curated groups or more censorious groups where people who get attacked a lot tend to congregate and that the open internet then becomes overpopulated with the people who generally feel safe on there. Yeah. Over to you, political economy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if we're talking about structural power, it's interesting to think in terms of a material approach, how does this structure coagulate? No, um, and there's been significant scholarship in media and communications on how communication is infrastructure uh, is very much in tandem with a lot of other physical infrastructure. Uh, why was communication infrastructure always intersecting with uh, military infrastructure, roadways, railways, uh, you know, so business, uh, military control and commerce, all of these um, depended on stable infrastructure, which is centrally controlled. Now, in, in a country like India, um, political independence was more like a transfer of power from one set of elites to another set of elites. So um, the, the, the mechanisms which have loosened some of that power has come through political representation. But actually, the material infrastructure is still very much uh, in the hands of those domestic elites. It's not really been democratized to the extent one hopes to, um, uh, one hope or one assumes. So there has been um, some amount of democratization. Um, I can speak uh, in India because of the reduced capital expenditure, mm -hmm. because of the reduced operating expenses. Um, a lot of oppressed groups have been able to uh, start channels 
but it's not just the ability to post content mm. it's the ability to have a domain name to have vpn to have legal support it's that entire you know back end infrastructure that very much and the legal uh, structure all that is still very much um, undemocratic mm. so if you see um, who is online it's it's kind of a palimpsestic logic uh, right from i don't know 150 years ago at least in india that's how it works so the palimpsestic logic would um, kind of indicate that it's not just people who are online it's people who know english mm. and who knows english so you just if you work layer by layer you'll see that the number is drastically smaller it's not really the majority um so yeah that's that's how i would put it i mean i can go on and on but i think i and, hope i've given a sense yeah yeah and we can just add to that in places like brazil where there are some oral cultures which don't really find their place online where people who don't want to participate in written language <laughs> actually end up not not going online or or maybe you start a youtube channel but then that's something that people a lot of a lot of people don't have connectivity in particular areas and so we get into issues of access and i think that's another reason in in various places and as as ram pointed out in myanmar until a few years ago just a mobile handset was $2000 and so you can imagine who who you know who got those and we could get into issues of language but that would be you know that's another discussion Thank you so much. Um so we are going to turn it over for questions from the audience. That was po possibly the most achingly chilling book launches that I've been to. I thought I was prepared. Well yeah. Um yeah, I read the book. Um thank you so much for the important work that you put in and for making it accessible like it, it was free. So thank you. I could download it and read it. Um so thanks for that and congratulations. um i guess one thing that i wanted to find out and perhaps like there's a lot of work that you, both of you have also put into um figuring out how people like respond to different forms of hate power geometries to use your uh, phrasing hierarchies of hate um but something that i i thought i could explore in my dissertation and your book was instrumental for that so thanks again um was to look at how um recipients of hate respond to like the newer forms of hate like the the ones that are um enabled by like technocratic narratives and enabled by uh, digital surveillance enabled by newer forms of technology like deep fake etc so um have you had the chance to like talk to your um interviewees and participants about how the, if there if there is a difference in um response to hate that they receive from like you know like real people versus hate that they receive from like like manufactured hate or like hate they receive from bots and of course i think it's obvious in countries like india that manufactured hate possibly like comes from the state um or like from comes from like or manufactured by major, majoritarian groups but um if we take the case of like suli deals bolibais etc like did you talk to people about how response to that was like different from response to like say hate that they get from like bots or like from whatever like sort of um flurry of hate like that shall i take this yes so that's a great question thank you and i think we did extensively but not a lot of that found its way into the book because there was just so much talk about that and i'll briefly summarize so we talked a lot in in our in our amongst our british interviewees there was an enormous amount of talk about street harassment 
you know, just constant, constant street harassment, whether that was being called the P word or the N word as they walked by in Sainsbury's to shop for something, or whether that was um, being Asian and having spit put in their face because it was the start of the COVID pandemic and someone thought they shouldn't be wearing a mask. There was a, a repeated and constant reference to daily experiences of harassment. Women talked about walking about with their hands around their bodies so that they didn't get touched. And this is something that's been written about repeatedly elsewhere, but very rarely do people say, well, actually, I'm always thinking, is that guy, is that woman, was that one the same person who wrote this note online? And people really, really quickly, you know, because the narrative often is 80% of the messages are fake. They come from sock puppet accounts, they're by bots. Let it, you know, the, the phrase is water off a duck's back. Just let it go. Why should you be bothered by it? But people took a lot of trouble in, particularly in Brazil, India, and the UK, and not so much because we didn't really get that many in-depth interviews in Myanmar, but in these three countries, they took a lot of trouble to tell us 80% of the hate that we get, we know it comes from a real person. We've, we've been careful to check out, and it's not that easy, but we've been really careful to check out indicators which would suggest this was a sock puppet or a bot account, and it's not. So I think it's sort of a reverse of the situation that a lot of the sort of techno folk are telling us. So they say a lot of this is just generated sort of um, artificially and, you know, you need to just let it go or you need to report it or you need to block it. And these people do block. But you know what? When you block a bot, the bot's gone. But when you block a real individual, they pop up the next day with a new phone number. And you know because they have a particular tone, they use particular kinds of ideas. And, and one of the accounts we give in the book is from a wonderful, wonderful um, professor who had come to speak at LSE. And she, as a sort of very out and outspoken black woman in the UK, um, you can go to her Twitter account, it's, it's in the book, and you can see just on a daily basis how many nuanced comments of hate she gets about every single media appearance that she does. And none of that, in fact, not a single one of that is by a bot. It's all different. It's all carefully customized. So someone somewhere is sitting there actually feeling this hate. It isn't just a political phenomenon. Now, your question about the newer and newer forms, um, and we probably could spend a lot of time on this answer. I'll simply say that there are newer forms still which are targeting groups who are against hate. And one of those is to discredit them by making up a fake story about something hateful that has happened um, and planting evidence, which is a recent phenomenon that has taken place a couple of times in India, um, making them run a story about hate which then is overturned and shown to be completely fake. And it makes them look like frauds. Oh, these people were crying wolf. But the amount of technological know-how that goes into constructing such a fake story is immense. So not only is the Indian software genius industry putting its mind and its heart behind hate, it's also teaming up with such industries in other places, notably Israel, with spy companies like Pegasus to plant absolutely undetectable software on people's phones. So we are getting into a region where sociologists like us simply can't compete. We won't be able to tell you what or what isn't on your phone soon, but thanks for the question. There's a second question up here, and then we're also going to take two questions from online as well. 
Okay, so I want to ask a question. You say, you know, here is the absence of the response to those hate speech. Like, you know, when you get this hate speech and maybe from the elite groups from, so how can those vulnerable people do respect, uh, respond to those, to, to respond to those hate speech? Because if we do nothing, okay, things just be here. If we just uh, say, you know, to give the, hate speech back maybe it's also a bad thing i don't know maybe it's it can be stigmatized for yeah so i'm wondering how the individuals can do yeah. to respond to those hate speech um i think we'll both take this question i'll i'll just talk about a couple of things that people have said you're absolutely right and when you said give it back um i'll simply say that if you are responding to someone who's giving you hate speech and you do so in an uncivil manner, and I want to introduce the notion of civility here, um, you, you do so in an uncivil manner, it's not necessarily hate speech. So you're not giving it back, you're responding uncivilly. And maybe in some of these instances, we do need to respond uncivilly because some of these people not only have sent hate speech, they're also bullies. And so they're part of a larger network of bullies. And so some of the people we know do um, absolutely respond tit for tat. They, they are sharp with their words, they're quick on their feet, they think fast, and they make a laughing stock of some person who has come with some ideologically motivated comment. So that happens, but equally, they don't do that because there is this notion that it'll just feed the flames and it'll encourage the trolls. And that's also true. That also happens, that sometimes when you give it back, and you humiliate the person and you make them feel small, they'll come back with a, an army of people against you. And they'll come back with a police injunction against you, as has been known to happen in Brazil, as has been known to happen in India. So you could post something that makes fun of someone who spoke hate speech, and you can find yourself under arrest in 24 hours. And so you'd better be pretty sure of your defenses before you do that, or you get accused of hate speech, as you talked about. So people leave, they, they block endlessly, they spend hours, they get other people to curate their accounts, they don't even look at their own social media, or they leave one medium and go on to another one. They use one medium only for a professional profile and they use another one for a, on a private setting, and they use a third one for political work. You know, people separate out their personas and their accounts. Um, people who receive, recipients of hate very rarely um, can say, for the last five years, I've been out and proud and I'm on here, I'm just doing this. Frequently, there will be a moment of complete, absolute mental and spiritual breakdown. The point at which somebody just has to leave. They have to leave and they don't just leave social media, they leave everything because they have been so worn down by what they're receiving on a daily basis. And we were told harrowing accounts of people who had to take their families into hiding, who had to themselves go into hiding, people who had to leave jobs because their job was to be a social media advocate for a particular organization, but they couldn't do it because they simply couldn't bear the hate they were receiving on a daily basis. So yours is a good question, but there are so many different ways. And I, I personally want to say that privatized ways, private individual ways of responding to hate are going to maybe temporarily make you feel okay, but ultimately they're not going to stop this because as you know, it's connected to power and it's connected to history. So we have so many questions. I want to actually make sure that we get to uh, perhaps two of the ones online and then we'll come back and we'll collect two in person and we can kind of measure our responses yeah. accordingly. Okay. Can we put any useful pressure on our government or the media? 
and a question from Baharul Islam. Do you think the legal response to hate speech would help? What has been your experience during your study in regards to legal responses to hate speech? Um, can we put any useful pressure on our government and media? Do you want to go with that one? Yeah, I think um, pressure. It's interesting because um, one way of putting pressure, if you think of it in a physical way, like a roadblock really puts pressure on flows of people, capital, etc. Right. So in the virtual sense, a platform like Facebook, 98% of its revenue comes from advertising. So after George Floyd, um, a lot of groups got together and forced um, the advertisers to back off Facebook, right? So uh, that was a very useful uh, pressure tactic because Facebook immediately overhauled its algorithms. Till then, their thing was, oh, we can't look at the scale. It's all done through artificial intelligence, algorithms, and so on and so forth. But when the pressure came on the advertising, they said, oh, yeah, we're going to take a second look at our algorithms, you know. So um, I don't know if it can be done in all countries. American advertisers, obviously, very different ballgame from, let's say, advertisers in Honduras or Azerbaijan, you know. Maybe India and Brazil are big markets. There's still a possibility. But some of the smaller global south, that's not going to be a feasible tactic. Mm -hmm. um, there are other ways, I think, um, when groups get together, so this is what I um, just want to take off from what Shaku was saying. Uh, individual ways are temporary respites, but I think uh, the best way to put pressure, whether it's on the governments or whether it's on uh, the companies, is to collectivize and show that you represent a significant block, either commercially, politically, in whatever sense. Individually, there's just very little uh, option. Um, that's how I, That's how I see it. But maybe the law you can talk um, about. I think that's that's absolutely true. And I'll try and just quickly finish answering the first question and then segue into the second one. So um, is there a useful way of putting pressure on media? Well, um, as a media teacher and someone who's been doing this for 30 years now, I'm hoping that there is. Otherwise, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that many of you will go away or already are alternative producers of media in some way, that you can influence organizations, that you can make many different formats. So don't assume that one just has to respond to the news with news. Take a leaf out of the multi-genre book of the hate producers and find creative and exciting ways of responding, of making things. I mean, I, th I don't think satire is dead. I think that I've seen some incredibly um, um, polished versions which make fun of mainstream media. And actually mainstream media has had to sit up and take a look. And this is happening, not just in countries which have this kind of commercial media mixture, but even in China, there are groups that put pressure through their own, um, let's say their own um, YouTube channel. And some of these, for instance, in the amongst Brazilian indigenous land defenders, some of these channels have had to be picked up by mainstream news because they've been so widely circulated and their reports have been so immediate and brilliant. That doesn't mean that they can't be shut down. It doesn't mean that someone can't come along and do something. But that kind of pressure or friction, as Ram was calling it, which just doesn't let the single narrative dominate is hugely, hugely important. We can't possibly allow ourselves to totally give up hope. I mean, 
what we have to do is accurately evaluate where we are now with governments and media. And that segues into my second answer to the question about do legal mechanisms work at all? What's the point? And of course, I'm going to tell you legal mechanisms do and can work, and we mustn't cede them to the far right. We mustn't give up. We mustn't because otherwise, I mean, there are places in which I simply wouldn't sit down in front of an audience and say, I am this or I am that. I wouldn't talk about things to do with my sexuality um, because there is a danger in doing that, that you might end up getting lynched outside the room. The fact that one can do that in some spaces is because some people fought for legal protections. Okay, so no way are we going to give up on the law, but equally we need to be aware of two things in this debate about the whether the law can work one that the law is only as good as or as bad as good faith. And so if you've got the law being applied by bad faith actors. Um, police who actually subscribe to the hateful content, prosecutors who subscribe to the government's ideological perspective you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you trust it, so you need to believe in and look for those kind of legal solutions, but with a lot of um, careful thought and work and people on your side. And it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's exhausting emotionally to go into that. You have to be so organized and you will be taken to pieces. So the law is not an easy route to go down. And the second thing to say, and I think it's really important to say it in a media and communications department, is that free speech will be misused literally everywhere you go. And that people who use hate speech on a regular basis will come back at you with a free speech defense. And therefore, we need to radically overhaul in political science, media and communications and sociology, how we talk about free speech. Because free speech is not absolute in democracies. It shouldn't be. And if it is made to be absolute, it's being elevated against the right to life, the right to dignity and the right to citizenship. And I think that's deeply, deeply disturbing. Thank you so much. I believe that we actually have to wrap up. Um, and so I'm actually going to invite you all to ask questions during the book signing <laughs> and the reception afterward. So um, for those of you who are saying for uh, your books to be signed, you, uh, we will have a queue here on stage, um, but actually, if we can just give a really hearty round of applause for our authors. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.